Good morning. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vows to intensify the war in Gaza until Hamas is destroyed. Could the violence spark a larger regional war? That's on this hour of Morning Edition from NPR News. President Biden appears open to compromising on immigration in exchange for aid for Ukraine. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Asma Khalid. But how could those compromises alienate the president's political base ahead of the 2024 election? It's been a full year since the James Webb Telescope has been fully examining the cosmos. What have scientists learned from the most powerful telescope ever made by humans? It's Tuesday, December 26th. Happy birthday to Game of Thrones actor Kit Harington, who turns 37 today. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. U.S. military forces have struck three facilities in Iraq used by a militia group with ties to Iran. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, President Biden ordered the strikes on sites linked to unmanned aerial drone activity after American service members were injured in an attack. National Security Council spokesperson Adrian Watson says President Biden was briefed on the Christmas Day attack that left three service members injured, one critically. Later, he was presented with options for a military response. And according to a statement from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Biden ordered, quote, necessary and proportionate strikes on three facilities used by Kata'ib Hezbollah and affiliated groups in Iraq. He added that while the U.S. does not seek to escalate conflict in the region, quote, we are committed and fully prepared to take further necessary measures to protect our people and our facilities. The U.S. military's Central Command said the strikes destroyed the targeted facilities and likely killed a number of militants. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The U.N. Humanitarian Affairs Office has reiterated its concern for the safety of Palestinian civilians in Gaza. This comes as Israel's prime minister is vowing to intensify the bombardment of the territory. A U.N. representative, Gemma Connell, says the Israeli army told Palestinian civilians to evacuate central Gaza for their own security, but they have nowhere safe left to go. When I say that there were strikes again today and casualties arriving, some of those strikes were in areas that people have been told to evacuate to, which again goes back to the refrain that I think I am so sick of saying, but there is no safe place in Gaza. And even when people are told to evacuate, the places that they are fleeing to are not safe. She spoke to the BBC. It was a white Christmas across a large swath of the central plains and upper Midwest. A winter storm brought snow, ice, and strong winds to Nebraska, the Dakotas, and Minnesota. NPR's Dave Mistich reports weather forecasters are warning travel will be difficult to nearly impossible. The storm is expected to bring as much as 18 inches of snow to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. On Christmas Day, Nebraska state troopers say they responded to about 60 weather-related incidents, with one accident involving several semis closing down Interstate 80 for hours. Nebraska State Patrol spokesperson Cody Thomas says much of the state has been affected by the storm. Basically all the way to the city of Lincoln and even toward Omaha as well. So nearly all of Nebraska has been impacted by this storm. In many cases, those blizzard conditions, thankfully, have stayed uh, north of Interstate 80. Nebraska officials are asking motorists to stay off the roads until they can be cleared and conditions improve. Dave Mistich, NPR News. On Wall Street, stock futures are higher. You're listening to NPR News. 
With the winter storm in the central U.S., it's been a dry start to the ski season across the western U.S. The region has had below-average snow totals. From member station KUNC, Alex Hager reports that's probably not causing too much financial trouble for resorts. Industry experts say snow quality has little to do with skier traffic. Chad Dyer is managing director of ski website On the Snow. He says a lot of skiers and snowboarders have planned trips months in advance. Their flights are booked. Their lodging is booked. As long as the ski resort is open, you know, it's got a product, by and large, they're going to visit. Dyer says a large number of skiers are using multi-resort season passes and have already purchased lift access for the year. On a recent earnings call, the mountain ownership group Vail Resorts said it expects 73 percent of all skier visits to come from season pass holders. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager. Associates of jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny say they have located him. He had lost, been, rather, he had been out of contact for nearly three weeks from his prison in central Russia. The associates say Navalny has turned up in another Russian penal colony. This one is north of the Arctic Circle. Navalny has long opposed Russian President Vladimir Putin. The Russian government says he's an extremist. London police say over the weekend they arrested a second suspect in the alleged theft of an artwork by reclusive street artist Banksy. The suspect is a man in his 40s. The Banksy artwork is a regular stop sign with three modeled drones placed on top of it. Banksy's art has criticized war. This is NPR. I'm Sharon Brody. This is WBUR in Boston. The minimum wage in Massachusetts will hold steady at $15 an hour in the new year. However, as Sam Hudzik reports, there's an effort to change that for some farm workers in the state. At a legislative hearing this fall, advocates pointed out what many in the state don't know about minimum wage rules. $15 for virtually everybody except farm workers who get $8 an hour. Bill Newman is a lawyer with the Massachusetts ACLU. That's the law. And as attorney and law professor Claudia Quintero noted, Many of the workers are seasonal and many struggle with basic necessities during the winter months. These workers also have no overtime protections. Both issues are addressed in pending legislation. The State Farm Bureau opposes the bill because of the overtime changes, but is open to doing away with the lower minimum wage, saying most farms pay much more. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sam Hutzik. Massachusetts requires that children under eight years old sit in a federally approved car seat when in a car. However, state law does not outline what kinds of car seats they should be. State Senator Barry Feingold is pushing a bill to change that. He says the bodies of a toddler and a seven-year-old child are very different. The bill is simple. It specifies that in infants and toddlers on the age of two or weighing up to 30 pounds must use a rear facing car seat. Feingold says young children are less likely to get seriously injured in a crash when they're in a rear-facing car seat. Norwood police say the woman shot by officers last week is expected to survive. Investigators say officers shot the woman last Friday after she pointed a gun at officers and herself. Police say they spoke with the woman for about 45 minutes before she charged at them, which is when they shot her. Her name has not been released. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at ROADScholar.org learning.
The Celtics celebrated Christmas with a win in Los Angeles. They beat the Lakers 126 to 115 last night. The season's next game is Thursday night at home against the Pistons. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning. Use caution out there. Mostly cloudy today, a high around 50. Cloudy and foggy overnight, the low near 40. Cloudy tomorrow, some rain in the afternoon. It will be in the lower 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Fadel. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is digging in on his war against Hamas as Israeli strikes in central and in south Gaza intensified over the past few days. In a speech to the Knesset on Monday, he vowed to keep fighting until Israel achieves its stated goal of destroying Hamas. That, despite some public pressure from the Biden administration to protect civilians in Gaza. Here to discuss all of this is NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman. Good morning, Tom. Hey, Leila. Hi. So, Tom, let's start with Netanyahu. He says he'll continue and even go deeper with this war. What's the U.S. saying? Well, President Biden spoke with Netanyahu over the weekend and said only they had a long talk, and Biden said he did not ask for a ceasefire. The U.S. does want Israel to curtail bombing and go to a more precise ground operation. That's just not happening, at least not yet. And just a day ago, uh, some 70 to 80 civilians were killed in airstrikes in Gaza in the crowded neighborhood. And of course, lately, as you know, the death toll is more than 20,000 now with the majority women and children. You know, I was talking with a retired senior U.S. officer with long experience in the Middle East about all this. And he told me Israel will listen to the U.S. and then do things its own way. Mm, Just staggering numbers there. What else do we know about what's happening on the ground for Palestinians who are trying to find safety? Well, a lot are displaced. The Human Rights Watch says 85% of Gazans now are displaced, nearly half kind of near the border with Egypt. A senior administration official told reporters a month ago the U.S. did not want to see large numbers of Palestinians who were in northern Gaza, remember, forced south by Israeli forces, Mm -hmm. displaced once again. But that is happening to many thousands of Palestinians. Now, the Israelis are providing maps and information about safer places to go, but Leila, it's online and with communications blackout, it's kind of difficult to make that happen. Now, the U.S. wants Israel to curtail bombing and go to a more precise ground operation. That's just not happening, at least not yet. And of course, the death toll, again, as we said, it's more than 20,000. Yeah, all this as the U.N. put uh, a report out saying half a million People are starving in Gaza, and the risk of famine is growing every day. But what about the concern about a larger regional war? The White House said last night that it conducted airstrikes on militants in Iraq. Help us understand the bigger context here. Well, the White House says three U.S. military personnel were wounded, uh, one critically, in an attack by Kateb Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed group in Iraq. The U.S responded with airstrikes. We're seeing these attacks from Iranian-backed groups that also back Hamas in the war against Israel. Houthi rebels in Yemen have been attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea, about a dozen or more in the past two months. The U.S. has responded by creating a, a naval coalition to protect commercial ships in the Red Sea. 
Uh, it's a wait-and-see attitude by the shipping companies. Some are going around Africa as a way to reach Europe. But uh, again, this uh, coalition of naval ships has just begun. Right now, as we're talking about the possibility of a regional war, the fighting continues in Gaza. What do we know about any diplomatic efforts to try to stop it? Well, Egypt has proposed a plan to bring an end to the war by installing a new governing body in Gaza to replace Hamas. Reuters news agency is reporting Hamas has rejected the deal. The Egyptian plan calls for the release of all hostages and the freeing of more imprisoned Palestinians along with exchange of bodies of Israelis and Palestinians killed during the war. And now Qatar brokered the first ceasefire, as you might remember, with Hamas's political office in Doha. It's likely to be involved in any future deals, but we just don't know at this point. NPR's Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. Democrats face an uphill battle in next year's elections to maintain their narrow majority in the U.S. Senate. The races test the polarization in red states and the extent to which the issue of abortion rights resonates with voters. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis has this preview. In order to win re-election, Montana Democrat John Tester needs to defy recent history. Montanans pride themselves in splitting tickets, but you have to give them a reason to do that. Americans are finding fewer reasons to do just that. In the previous two presidential elections, just one state, Maine, split tickets electing a Democratic president and a Republican senator. Tester and Ohio Democrat Sherrod Brown are the two Democrats running in states where the Republican nominee, likely former President Trump, will likely win big again. If either senator loses, it could cost the Democratic majority. That's why Republican campaign operatives like Stephen Law, who runs the Senate Leadership Fund's Super PAC, are bullish about a takeover. It will be hard for any of these senators in those states, these Democrats, to cobble together enough swing voters to put them over the top as long as we've got a credible candidate and we run an effective campaign. Credible candidates and effective campaigns have eluded Senate Republicans in their quest for the majority in recent elections, costing the party seats they were favored to win in states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. And that's partly why Michigan Senator Gary Peters, who's running the Democrats' campaign operation, says his party has a shot to hold their majority. Normally the most extreme candidate gets out of a Republican uh, primary. After the primary, they're also uh, damaged in many ways, and uh, their flaws are quite apparent to the voters. And when given that contrast, uh, we win. But there are few bright spots for Democrats. Joe Manchin's decision to retire means West Virginia is all but certain to flip to Republicans. Democrats could maintain control of their seven competitive seats and still lose control of a 50-50 Senate if President Biden loses. The vice president breaks the tie in a split Senate. Jessica Taylor, an election analyst with the nonpartisan Cook Political Report, put it this way. Democrats have to pitch a perfect game. There is no room for error. Meanwhile, Republicans are almost entirely on offense. Democrats will make runs at defeating incumbents like Ted Cruz in Texas and Rick Scott in Florida, but they are, for now, long-shot bids. That means Law, a close ally of Mitch McConnell, will be able to spend most of the super PAC's projected $275 million war chest attacking Democrats rather than protecting Republicans. With relatively little risk, it just means that the cycle is almost entirely upside. 
The red state Democrats aren't without advantages. Tester and Brown are established, well-funded, and remain pretty popular back home. A recent morning consult poll had Tester with an eye-popping 61% approval rating. But being likable and getting reelected aren't the same thing, says Taylor. Voters are no longer looking at a vote for Senate as a vote for the person. They're looking at it as a vote for who they want to control Congress. Brown says his record as a progressive populist with his support for unions and worker rights still resonates in Ohio. He rejects the conventional wisdom that Democrats in states like his need to move to the middle to win. Voters don't think in those terms. Pundits do, and maybe some reporters do, and maybe some of my colleagues do. But to me, it's whose side are you on? With Biden's sagging popularity and a sour national mood on the economy, Democrats want to make the whose side are you on question central to all of their campaigns when it comes to abortion. Here's Tester again. It shouldn't be the United States Senate telling a woman how to make their health care decisions. This is a little thing called freedom that Montana's value in a big, big way. All of the Republicans running in the Ohio primary support a national abortion ban, which, if enacted, could supersede Ohio's recent referendum protecting abortion access. Ohioans won't stand for, we voted for this, and these politicians who want to go off to Washington are going to repeal it. Law concedes Republican candidates have to do better articulating their views on abortion or risk alienating swing voters. They're going to have to spend campaign money to talk about it. They're going to have to deflect attacks and explain where they are. Senate primary elections to determine those candidates begin in March. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. There's a traditional Christmas dish in Venezuela called ayacas, similar to tamales. Millions of Venezuelans who fled their country prepared this dish far from their homeland and relatives this year. KUER's Ciara Hewlett visited with one of those families in Utah. Yesenia Castejon and her family have played this song every Christmas since they left Venezuela six years ago. It's about being away from family during the holiday. Yesenia's relatives are spread across the world, but they still make ayacas together over their phones. We talk while doing it. Even from a distance, we see each other on the little screen, and like that, we feel a little closer. 17-year-old Valeria cuts vegetables for the filling and tells me that she doesn't know if she'll ever return to Venezuela. She says the future is very uncertain for migrants. Dad Anaximenes Chirinos says they left Venezuela because it's really unsafe and unstable. You don't know if you should be more worried about common crime or be more afraid of law enforcement or of the state. Cooking ayacas is reminding Yesenia of her mother back home. I try to imitate my mom's ayaca, but it never turns out the same. She mixes corn flour and water by hand to make the dough, or masa, then spreads it onto a banana leaf. We spread the dough out nice and flat. Then they add the filling on top before wrapping it up. Eight-year-old Leticia has cut heart shapes out of banana leaf scraps and wants them to go inside each ayaca. She says putting hearts on the ayacas is now a new tradition. Back in Venezuela, they would make 150 ayacas. 
but tonight they only made about 25. Yesenia says eating the ayaka transports her back to her homeland. For NPR News in South Jordan, Utah, I'm Ciara Hewlett. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, President Biden says he's willing to compromise on border security as he tries to secure a Ukraine funding deal. You'll hear about what that could mean for the 2024 election. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. The new movie, All of Us Strangers, is a love story between two men that feels slightly unreal, like a fairy tale. But writer-director Andrew Haig also wanted to ground his film in some kind of reality. All of our decisions sort of came around, like, what does it feel like to be alone? And then what does it feel like to be intimate again with someone? What does it feel like to connect? I'm Ari Shapiro. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 a.m. The high today around 50 degrees. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom. Paycom guides employees to find and fix payroll errors before submission in the Paycom app. Information about employee-guided payroll is at paycom.com NPR. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Asma Khalid. The Academy Award-winning director Steve McQueen has a new film out in theaters this week called Occupied City. It's a four-hour meditative documentary that provides two simultaneous portraits of Amsterdam. One a journey through modern routine life, recent years of pandemic and protest. The other, a record of atrocities during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in the early 1940s. In May 1940, Amsterdam was taken over by the Germans. Immediately, they set the clock forward. So it was the same time in Amsterdam as in Berlin. The weather report disappeared from the newspapers. It was now a military secret. All streetlights were turned off. Dutch organizations were Nazified or forbidden. Soon, the Nazis started to ban Jews from parks, pools, shops, cafes and schools, from all public life. Music by Jewish composers could no longer be played. In 1941, they started rounding people up. In 1942, the deportations began. Earlier, I sat down with McQueen and his wife, the historian Bianca Stichter. 
She wrote Atlas of an Occupied City, the book that inspired this documentary. Bastikter says there are some key differences between the book and the film. The film is more of a free wandering through the city, and the book is more practically set up like a guidebook. The documentary is over four hours long, a runtime that McQueen adamantly defends. This couldn't be an hour and a half film. It, it needed that contemplation, needed that meditations to sort of get into the psyche of the cinema experience. And that time was very important for us. So this is a film that shows contemporary scenes of Amsterdam. There's not archival footage. It's narrated by a younger woman. Was there a purpose behind that choice and help us understand what you were trying to convey? I think it was a voice of, of not that time. It was a voice of now. There was optimism in, in the person's voice, even though there was a, a, a dispassionate sort of description of what was going on. And that was because I didn't want to manipulate the audience. It was about the audience sort of bringing the information, receiving the information for the first time. So it was about that moment where it was not about her being sort of dictating a history lesson. It was about hmm. her telling you what was happening. You shot part of the film during the COVID pandemic, and there is this juxtaposition at moments during the film where we see lockdowns in Amsterdam while listening to the narrator describe how Nazis used curfews to punish Jews during World War II. What were you trying to tell us with that juxtaposition? It's about what happened here. It's, this, is, this is the meditation of what happened here in Amsterdam during the Nazi occupation. These things happened, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're living now, and we're living with the evidence of the proof of what happened. You hear these horrific bits of information about what happened, and you see these contemporary scenes of life going on. There is this powerful disconnect with the information that I'm hearing from the narrator and the images that I'm seeing. People have died and fought, fought and died for freedom, and the freedom for people to do what they want. And these so-called horrible things happen, yes, but it was to do with war. And in war, horrible things happen. But now, you know, there's peace in Europe for now. Well, some parts of Europe, there's peace. You know, it would have been a different world had the Nazis had, had won the war, the Second World War. The film in that way is very open and the texts you hear are very factual. So we are not telling you what to think. You can try to make a connection between what you hear about the past and what you see now or not. That is open to each individual viewer. You live in Amsterdam now. Do you feel that the city, that the citizens of Amsterdam have a sense of this past that you are conveying here in the film? Some do and some don't. I mean, mm -hmm. just like slavery in America, some people have an understanding of it, some people don't. I mean, it's like anything, you know, some people do, some mm -hmm. people don't. I mean, last time myself and Banker were in Washington, we, we stumbled across uh, where, well, there was no marking then, there was a, where Solomon Northup's slave pen was and where his hotel where he was kidnapped in Washington. So, yeah, these things are there. And, you know, they're, they're there. It's like, again, as I said before, when I, when I came to Amsterdam, in the real way, I felt I was living with ghosts. So what, what Occupy City is about is illuminating that past. When you go to the movies, people try to connect. They try to connect the dots, try to make sense of things. But the, 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 what your lessons learn from this situation is nothing makes sense. Because you, how can you even fathom or sort of uh, get to an, an understanding of how, for example, you know, during this war, six million people, Jewish people and Roma, and gay people died. Try and make sense of that.
This kind of pondering is what the movie makes you do. How do you connect the past and, and the present? Can you make yeah. sense out of it? Or do you have to uh, conclude that a lot of times you cannot make sense of it? When you hear all these stories, at a certain moment you realize, hey, these people from the past that we only see, if we see them in pictures, it's in black and white and very uh, grainy and looks very old, not our concern. And here you realize, but those people are are us. They also lived in a world full of color and emotions. And this movie is also a mirror in that sense. Do you want viewers to take a, a message away from the film? The, the message is that the Nazis didn't win. And there's this new generation of Jewish people who are thriving and living in Amsterdam. That's, the, that's what the end of the movie is, obviously. It's not a movie that spells it out in every minute. We give you the facts and then it's also up to you to make up your own mind. It's yeah. not a film whacking a finger at you. It's well, a film that, that I hope will make you think yeah, for yourself. Exactly. It's not a history lesson. You know, mm. there's tons of books that you can have and that people know about. But again, if it's about a certain meditations, a journey, if you will. And it's one of those situations where you, the responsibility is on you as a viewer, as a different way of looking at a, at a narrative. It has to be, because otherwise you're just doing the same thing all over again. That was director Steve McQueen, along with his wife, the writer and historian Bianca Stiekscher. The film, Occupied City, is out in theaters this week. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, an indigenous fashion show helps Native American women heal. It's 7.29. WBUR supporters include the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden has ordered retaliatory airstrikes against an Iranian-backed militia group in Iraq. The strikes were carried out after a drone attack on a U.S. airbase. Three American service members were injured, one critically. Families of Israeli hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza protested outside the Israeli Defense Ministry complex in Tel Aviv on Monday. Demonstrator Yael Calderon's twin brother was among those who were taken. We want to hear what's the plan. What's the plan now? When Hamas says no to the deal, we want to know what's next. Israel says more than 100 people remain unaccounted for after they were abducted by Hamas during the attack on southern Israel more than two months ago. The foreign minister of India is in the Russian capital for a five-day visit. NPR's Dia Hadid is closely monitoring the talks from Mumbai. India's foreign minister, who's known as S.J. Shankar, is likely going to talk about trade. India has been a huge customer of Russian oil since the invasion of Ukraine, and it's getting that oil cheaper because Western sanctions have kept other buyers away. But those sanctions have also complicated how India pays for that oil. That's NPR's Dia Hadid reporting. This is NPR News.
This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Sharon Brody. Massachusetts has established five priorities for spending more than $600 million expected from opioid-related settlements. The money is coming to the state over nearly 20 years. WBUR's Martha Bibinger has more. The top priority is addressing the disproportionately high overdose rates for black and brown people who use drugs. Next is expanding services and treatment with a focus on hospital emergency rooms. John Rosenthal, a member of the state's Settlement Advisory Council, says ERs are an important touchpoint after an overdose. We're seeing a lot of people just feel like, you know, the continued uh, shame, blame and kick back to the street. The remaining priorities are retaining and building a more diverse workforce, supporting families hurt by opioid use and data analysis to track the impacts of these efforts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Officials in Lynn say an initiative meant to close racial wealth gaps is showing signs of success. The city is one of six communities in the state participating in the Racial Equity Municipal Action Plan. Since the program began in 2021, Lynn has introduced reforms, including new affordable housing opportunities and police body cameras. The city also hired translators to help write job postings in languages including Spanish, Haitian Creole, and Arabic. Officials involved in the program tell the Boston Globe the changes are the first steps to creating space for more diverse communities. Today is the first day of Kwanzaa. It is a celebration of African-American culture and heritage inspired by Pan-African values of family and history. Lovely Hoffman is the co-chair of the Boston Kwanzaa Community Association. She told WBUR's Radio Boston that she believes the message shared in Kwanzaa is one that resonates all year. It really is a blueprint in which our African ancestors have set for us. It's a guide for us, right? So a lot of times when we talk about, even today, there's a lot of conversation around, you know, being pro-black, black excellence, but we have to make sure we make that connection between who we are here and where we come from, that African connection. Kwanzaa runs through New Year's Day. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics beat the Lakers last night in L.A., 126-115. The Seas are now 9-2 in December. They'll host the Detroit Pistons on Thursday. A dense fog advisory is in effect around Boston until 10 this morning. High temperature today around 50. Cloudy overnight. The low will be near 40. Cloudy tomorrow. Rain in the afternoon. It'll be in the lower 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Fadil. President Biden has been trying to get more money for Ukraine from Congress. But Republicans in Congress say they first want to see big changes in policies at the southern U.S. border. Biden says he's willing to compromise, but big changes could alienate Latino voters ahead of the 2024 election. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has this story. 
when he was running for president in 2020, then-candidate Joe Biden said immigration was a top priority. I'll be president of the United States, not vice president of the United States. And the fact is, I've made it very clear. Within 100 days, I'm going to send to the United States Congress a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented people. And in his first days in office, he got to work, rolling back some of the hardline policies of former President Donald Trump. But his plans for legislation quickly stalled. And three years later, there's still no path to citizenship. And instead, Biden is looking at more restrictions. Democratic Latino leaders are worried. We are urging the Biden administration to say no. That's Nanette Barragon, chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. We are saying that we're going to put basically an end to asylum. We cannot allow that to happen. Andrea Flores is a former Biden official at the National Security Council. She's disappointed at what she sees as a drastic shift in what Biden appears to be willing to accept. I never thought that President Biden would oversee the end to the promise of immigration reform in the Democratic Party. Flores now works with the immigration advocacy group Forward.us. She warns there could be a political price for the shift. Well, he's not moving to the center. He's moving to a set of policies that once again are just, they're so extreme and then now they're being sold to the public as though they're not. The White House says they're in touch with Democratic leaders about their concerns. They're also facing pressure from other Democrats to do something about the record number of migrants arriving at the border. Last week, the Arizona governor, Katie Hobbs, a Democrat, sent National Guard troops to the border to help. The surge is straining resources in cities as far away as Chicago and New York, where Democratic Mayor Eric Adams is pressing Biden to do more. These in that coalition is getting louder, are more organized, and they clearly in saying the same things that this is a national problem that should not fall on the backs of local uh, cities. Arizona Democratic Senator Mark Kelly backs the push for stronger border measures. He says communities are running out of resources to help migrants find safe places to sleep. And that means they'll be released in the streets. And if you think this crisis is bad today, if that starts to happen, this is going to be much worse. According to a new poll by the Democratic strategy group Blueprint, a majority of Americans support stronger action on the border. Evan Roth Smith, the head pollster of the group, says the findings point to a potential winning strategy for Biden. And to some extent, every politician has to test at times their most loyal voters in order to try and win over the swing voters who determine close elections. He says Biden needs to thread the needle of doing right by the voters who are his base, while also appealing to independent voters who are up for grabs in critical states. I would much rather Joe Biden win the election uh, in the fall with a handful of compromises behind him and lose the election to Donald Trump, who is who is going to be on the other side of, of just about every issue that anyone in the Democratic base cares about. And he says Joe Biden would not be the first president to compromise on a sensitive issue to improve his election odds. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. It was two years ago on Christmas Day when NASA launched the James Webb Space Telescope, the most powerful space telescope ever. This huge telescope had to unfold itself out in space, and all of its instruments had to be calibrated and tested, a process that took months. That means this year, 2023, was its first full calendar year of actually doing science. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce asked astronomers what they learned. 
At the start of the year, astronomers were kind of tired. They'd just been through the first exciting months of getting data from this telescope. Jacob Bean is with the University of Chicago. He says that period was like the beginning of a marathon. And so like you take off, right? And the surge and everyone's going, right? And you're following the crowd. And then after a while you realize like, hey, we got to run 26 miles. And for Genevieve D, it's like, this thing's going to last for 20 years. So like you try to settle into a sustainable pace. Even though the initial frenzy has slowed down, he says the telescope keeps delivering big time. Take his area of astronomy. He studies planets that go around distant stars. Each data set for each planet that we look at is more insightful than almost every other observation we ever did before. He says what's clear now is that gas giant planets, even if they're about the same size, can have quite different atmospheres. Nature seems to have different recipes for making them. The diversity of these objects is the surprising thing. He says there was one kind of bummer this year when the telescope looked at a star called TRAPPIST-1. It's orbited by seven rocky planets. Astronomers thought this was the system where this telescope had the best chance of spotting a planet capable of supporting life. It's the best one that we know of and really the only one where we're going to be able to do this. But observations of the two innermost planets show that they seem to be bare rocks with no atmospheres. The gases might have gotten blown off by the star. That's because the star is more active than our own. It randomly erupts, sending out flares. Bean says that means its other planets may also be barren. Plus, all that star activity makes it hard to study them. Still, there were plenty of other wins. Garth Illingworth is with the University of California, Santa Cruz. He says when this telescope first switched on, it detected light from unexpectedly bright galaxies in the early universe. Over the last year, scientists have been able to learn more about them. We are finding that a lot of these galaxies have a significant contribution from black holes, from the light from black holes. And so that's part of the reason why they appear so bright. The James Webb Space Telescope even found the most distant confirmed black hole ever. Priya Natarajan is at Yale University. She says this black hole is 10 times more massive than the one at the center of our own Milky Way galaxy. And this behemoth existed when the universe was only about 500 million years old. In the infant universe, literally, you have this huge black hole and its host galaxy in place. And that's super exciting. She says it shows how black holes can form in multiple ways, as it seems to have formed from a huge cloud of collapsing gas rather than from a dying star. Meanwhile, the organization that manages the telescope has gathered proposals for where in the sky to point it during the next round of observations, which start in the summer. Nearly 2,000 proposals came in. That's a record for any space telescope. There's so many proposals, the vast majority won't make the cut. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, India's foreign minister is in Moscow to discuss relations between India and Russia, raising questions about whether this is a form of support for President Putin in the Ukraine war. 
A dense fog advisories in effect around Boston until 10 this morning. High today about 50 degrees, cloudy overnight, a low around 40. Cloudy tomorrow, some rain in the afternoon, highs in the lower 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. And Real Women Have Curves at ART. This holiday season, see the empowering new musical about life's unexpected curves. Now playing amrep.org. It is the busiest time of the year for many confectioners in New England. People are picking up sweet treats for the holiday stretch and before all those New Year's resolutions begin. Monica Dewar is the manager of Serenade Chocolatier in Brookline, and she says business is booming. The most popular item this year has been personalized boxes of chocolate. It's impossible to predict what's going to be popular from one year to the next. Some years we can't sell enough chocolate Santas. We'll make 120 and they'll be gone by the second week of December. Other years we'll make 130 to try and keep up and we'll only sell half. She says the shop will roll right into production for Valentine's Day now that Christmas is over. She says they stay busy through Easter. Freddie Farkle's Fabrics in Watertown has closed after nearly a century in business. The fabric store says it lost its lease at its textile warehouse. According to a social media post, the owners eventually plan to reopen as part of a new partnership with Newton-based RT Fabrics and Home. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Fadil. Therapy and healing can come from creating art. And that's what one group of intertribal women found as they worked through generational trauma that Native Americans experience. Cassidy Arena of member station Nebraska Public Media takes us to a special event. Please make sure that your phones are either on silent or off for the duration of the fashion show. The lights dim in the packed auditorium in downtown Omaha on December 3rd. The fashion show is about to begin. Backstage, the models are giddy with excitement. Kimberly Bedford is with her four-year-old granddaughter, Odyssey. They are both Santee Sioux and are wearing traditional native tea dresses. Bedford thought of her son, Odyssey's father, while she sewed them. He died in a car accident last year. When I got involved with sewing, you know, it took my mind off things. You know, I mean, it didn't make that situation go away, but it it helped, you know, like, I'm glad I can do this with her, because I know he would be glad. This fashion event showcasing Native American beadwork, ribbon skirts, and jingle dresses was organized by a local group called Healing Ribbons. It's an intergenerational, intertribal group of women from Nebraska and Iowa who all come together to sew. Healing Ribbons co-founder Tammy Buffalohead McGill started the program in memory of her sister who froze to death five years ago. Well, I discovered when I was at the sewing classes, I felt that. I felt for the first time that 
a, a boulder had been lifted off my shoulders. The women in this group are on their healing journey from centuries of historic trauma, and more recent ones too. Native American communities suffered a disproportionate loss of life due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Buffalohead McGill alone lost eight close family members, and she says many of the Native lives lost to the virus were culture bearers for the community. So all of a sudden, not only we lost people that we loved, but then we lost people that that were the ones that taught us and instructed us and helped us learn who we are and give us that sense of identity and connection. And there's another cause of pain. In 2021, recovered records indicated nearly 100 children at a government-run indigenous boarding school in the central region of the state had died there. The school closed in 1934. A series of digs have taken place on the former school's 640-acre grounds to find the children suspected to be buried there. Digs will continue this spring. That re-traumatized a lot of people, but it also started a dialogue. Historical traumas are seen as a soul wound for many Native American communities, according to Dr. Natalie Avalos, an assistant ethnic studies professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, who is of Mexican indigenous descent. Things like trauma are actually hereditary. They can change your DNA and that we can pass them on generationally. And Avalos says a potent way to heal from that trauma caused by generations of violence and marginalization is through participating in culturally relevant practices, like hosting a fashion show. Doing these things together, it rehumanizes because it enables people to see the beauty of their own culture it's a way of really taking back your power. Kimberly Bedford hopes this show will teach her granddaughter to feel empowered by her culture. I just want her to be proud of who she is. You know, when she says she's she's Indian or Native American, you know, that she, she knows a little bit about her history. Although the women in the fashion show agree it didn't make their traumas disappear, it helped to know they weren't alone allowing for a new way to feel proud of their identity. For NPR News, I'm Cassidy Arena, Nebraska. This is NPR News. It is a Tuesday on WBUR coming up at 820. A look back at some of the best albums of 2023. It's 749. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism is essential across our community and in your own daily life. Listener support keeps WBUR going. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give by Sunday, December 31st at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The U.S. carried out drone strikes on an Iran-backed militia in Iraq following an attack that injured three U.S. service members. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing to intensify the campaign against Hamas in his second known visit to Gaza since the war began. Russia has confirmed one of its warships was damaged in a Ukrainian attack on a Black Sea port. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR. App. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. You can shop their organic, sustainable, curated furniture collections during their end-of-year event, happening now. More at circlefurniture.com. 
A dense fog advisory is in effect around Boston until 10 a.m. High temperature today about 50 degrees overnight. Cloudy skies, the low near 40. Cloudy tomorrow, some rain in the afternoon. It'll be in the lower 50s tomorrow. It's 37 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Asma Khalid. Canada enjoys a reputation of being a friendly country, but over the past year, it has found itself in spats with some powerful nations, China and India among them. Ottawa accuses both of meddling in everything from politics to domestic security, which is forcing Canada to re-examine its policies and its identity. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports. Ice skaters bundled up against the cold zip around an outdoor rink in front of Ottawa City Hall. Trees around the rink sparkle with Christmas lights. Their bright colors bounce off snow, covering the lawn and sidewalks. It is a quintessential Canadian scene, one that for years shaped how many Canadians saw their place in the world. I think about when I was a kid uh, and where we, you know, uh, we had a rosy view of, of our, our international role and nobody was out there to harm Canadians uh, and Canadians could be all friends to all people on all issues. Jonathan Berkshire Miller is a foreign affairs specialist with the Macdonald Laurier Institute, a think tank in Ottawa. He says that benign view of Canada has been sorely shaken recently. And we're starting to wake up to some of these very hard realities that many states around the world uh, have interests adversarial to Canada. That became apparent in September when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood before Parliament and accused the Indian government of taking part in the killing of Hardeep Singh Nijar, a Sikh activist in British Columbia. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. The news of an extrajudicial killing stunned many Canadians. The Sikh community was not as surprised. At the Gurdwara Sahib, a Sikh temple on the outskirts of Ottawa, a religious leader wearing a dark turban reads from a holy book. A collection of swords is on display on the dais. Canada has a sizable Sikh community, and New Delhi claims many are extremists trying to carve a homeland, Khalistan, on Indian soil. Balpreet Singh is legal counsel and spokesperson for the World Sikh Organization of Canada. The history of India's targeting of Sikhs in Canada, it's something that Sikhs have lived with for many, many years, and people in the mainstream are finally aware that uh, India is engaging in very nefarious activities targeting six. But foreign interference in Canada goes beyond India. In 2010, the head of Canada's intelligence service, the CSIS, warned about China meddling in Canadian affairs. There are large ethnic Chinese communities in Toronto and on the West Coast. The threat of um, foreign interference is so nuanced that it's easy to look at it and say, what's the big deal? Dan Stanton is a former senior intelligence officer with the CSIS and ran its China program for a time. Incrementally, you see a very comprehensive approach towards a country like Canada, like they're hitting all the sectors, media, political, government, and diaspora communities 
to facilitate the promotion of their policies. China is also focusing on universities and think tanks. Colin Robertson is a former diplomat and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, a think tank in Ottawa. He says for years, Canada was complacent about the threats facing it because of its geographic position. There was some sense that we were simply sleeping through this because we've got the protection of the American security umbrella and we've got three oceans and we don't really have to worry about this kind of thing. This is a view echoed by Senator Peter Beam, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. The large power wants to make an example of a middle power, we are almost a sitting duck as the 11th or 12th largest economy in the world. And we would also be seen as a bit of a, a surrogate uh, for, for the U.S. if a country wants to send a message to the U.S., blame Canada. But I think that was on uh, South Park at one point, too. There have been a number of other incidents that have shaken Canada from a security stupor. In 2018, China arrested two Canadian citizens. It was broadly seen as retaliation for Canada detaining a senior executive of the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei at the behest of the Trump administration. The relationship soured further after leaked intelligence reports showed China was trying to pressure members of parliament and skew political campaigns. When I went door knocking, uh, people opening the door and they heard my name and they just basically shut in my face just within a very short 22 months period. Kenny Chu was elected to parliament in 2019 and was widely expected to be re-elected in 2021. But he started calling for a registry for foreign agents as a way to curb outside interference. Speaking from his home near Richmond, B.C., he says he criticized a Chinese crackdown in Hong Kong. Shortly after, his political fortunes changed. And just recently, in October, Canadian Security Intelligence Services had a debriefing finally with me, confirming with me that I was under the disinformation campaign attack during last election. The Canadian government is now taking action. Canada's parliament has launched an inquiry into foreign interference in national elections in 2019 and 2021. Stephanie Carvin, a former CSIS intelligence officer now at Carleton University, says Canada has underfunded its national security. She says it's hoped the inquiry will lead to more robust, enforceable national security policies. The fact is that our laws are very much out of date. The national security tends to be neglected by politicians who would rather provide things like dental plans, um, like daycare. But Jonathan Berkshire Miller with the Macdonald Laurier Institute says there's only so much Canada can do compared to, say, the U.S. The United States still has that heft where it can push back on certain issues. I think increasingly Canada is seen as a very, very soft and easy target, uh, even though we have strong affiliations and alliances with the United States. And that could be tested more in the future as economic and geopolitical power shifts more towards countries like India and China. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Ottawa. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faden.
This is 90.9 WBUR. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning. High temperature today around 50 degrees in Boston. Cloudy overnight, a low dropping to about 40 degrees. And cloudy tomorrow with rain in the afternoon in the lower 50s tomorrow. It's 37 degrees in Boston coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. carries out drone strikes against an Iran-backed militia in Iraq following an attack that injured three U.S. service members. It's Tuesday, December 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up, medical workers in Gaza talk about what they've seen amid the war between Israel and Hamas. I'm speechless when I try and think of the future of these children. It's generations of, of children who will be handicapped, who will be traumatized. Also, after some big wins in 2023, what's ahead for labor unions in the new year? And this hour? The patriarchy to me is a system that is very unjust and it needs, it's flawed and it's brought us lots of problems, so it, I question it. We hear from a Newton-based artist who is reimagining how women were portrayed by male artists of the 19th century. A foggy star today, it'll get up to about 50 degrees. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden ordered U.S. airstrikes against three facilities in Iraq. The facilities are used by a militia group that has ties to Iran. This follows drone strikes against U.S. sites in Iraq that left three U.S. service members wounded, one of them critically. The Pentagon Central Command says the U.S. strike destroyed the targeted facilities and likely killed a number of militants. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is listing his prerequisites for peace between Israel and Palestinians in Gaza. NPR's Jason DeRose reports from Tel Aviv. The Israeli leader published his list in the Wall Street Journal. Netanyahu says for there to be peace, three things need to happen. First, Israel's military needs to destroy Hamas. Second, Gaza needs to be demilitarized as a whole. And third, Palestinian society needs to be, in his words, de-radicalized. Netanyahu says in his op-ed piece that since Hamas has vowed to repeat attacks like the one on October 7th that left 1,200 dead, its military capabilities need to be dismantled and its political rule over Gaza must end. He likens the possibility of what he calls a de-radicalized Palestinian society to that of Germany and Japan after World War II, noting that those countries are now allies of the U.S. and promote stability in Europe and Asia. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Hundreds of pro-Palestinian demonstrators turned out in New York City on Christmas Day. Harrison Malkin reports the protesters rallied at Rockefeller Center and in Union Square. Signs read, no joy in genocide, and Israel is slaughtering Palestinians. A nativity scene was front and center in the rally, and at least one protester held a watermelon, a symbol of Palestinian solidarity and resistance. 
The protest comes after Christmas was called off in the Israeli-occupied West Bank city of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, because of the devastating war where the Israeli military has killed over 20,000 Palestinians. For NPR News, I'm Harrison Malkin. The National Weather Service says the winter storm pounding the upper central plains is going to get worse today. About a foot of snow could fall from eastern Colorado to South Dakota. David Roth is a forecaster with the Weather Prediction Center. He says people need to stay off the roads for safety. For the ones trying to travel, they just shouldn't. Um, Maybe evaluate as you go through the day. The winds should be very slowly coming down today. So maybe tonight they'll be able to get out. But, um, but yeah, it doesn't look very good for this morning into this afternoon. The National Weather Service has posted blizzard warnings for several states, from Nebraska to South Dakota. Ice storm warnings are up for North and South Dakota, too. You're listening to NPR News. The FBI is assisting in the investigation of several violent threats made against some Colorado State Supreme Court justices. The threats came after the Colorado High Court disqualified former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot. The Colorado court said Trump's actions around January 6th amounted to insurrection. Beatlemania was ignited 60 years ago this week with the release of the song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. From member station WKSU, Kabir Bhatia has more. Throughout 1963, the Beatles were megastars in Europe, but unknown in America thanks to their records coming out here on small, regional labels. Capitol Records wasn't interested until Beatles manager Brian Epstein urged the group to write a song that would appeal to American teenagers. Epstein and Beatles producer George Martin have both been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The band members have each been inducted twice, once as a group and also individually for their solo work. Their long-running Get Back to Let It Be exhibit at the museum closes this month. For NPR News, I'm Kabir Bhatia in Cleveland. The Associated Press is reporting a Japanese court is ordering a utility to pay damages to victims of the wrecked Fukushima nuclear power plant. The report says the Japanese court removed responsibility for the damage from the Japanese government. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Sharon Brody. The UMass Chan Medical School is embarking on a $21 million nationwide effort to train health care providers to treat mental health conditions during and after pregnancy. WBUR's Priyanka Dial-McCluskey reports. Mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety are common among people who are pregnant or recently gave birth, but OBGYN offices often lack the resources to treat these conditions, says Dr. Nancy Byatt, a psychiatrist at UMass Chan. Obstetric providers are trained to provide obstetric care, which historically has not included mental health care. So our goal in this study is to provide them with the resources they need so they can meet that standard of care. Byatt's study will track thousands of patients and test two approaches to treating mental health disorders. One group of participants will get treatment at a doctor's office, while the other also will receive peer support. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Town leaders in Yarmouth hope to finalize a new town seal early in the new year. 
The one that's been in place since 1895 depicts a Native American person. Town leaders tell the Cape Cod Times the person is wearing clothing that does not match what the actual Wampanoag people wore. A new seal being proposed features a lighthouse, a pine tree, and a schooner, and no people. It could be up for a town meeting vote this spring. A simple practice could help save patients' lives in the hospital. A new study links toothbrushing with fewer infections and a lower chance of death for patients on ventilators. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports that in this study, patients were randomly assigned to either have their teeth brushed or not. The data show toothbrushing reduces the patient's risk of pneumonia by about a third. It also shaves nearly two days off the patient's stay in the intensive care unit. Plus, it reduces their mortality rate by almost 20 percent. I said, whoa, that's a lot. Michael Klompas is an infectious disease physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. His findings were published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Here's something that's simple, that's cheap, and is so effective. It's pretty amazing. His guess is that toothbrushing reduces the number of microbes in your mouth that get into your lungs. He says more research is needed on toothbrushing outside of the intensive care unit and in patients not on a ventilator. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. The Celtics topped the Lakers 126 to 115 last night in Los Angeles. Next up for the Seas Thursday in Boston against the Pistons. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning. Today's high reaching about 50 degrees. Cloudy overnight, low around 40, and cloudy tomorrow. Some rain in the afternoon tomorrow with highs in the lower 50s. It is 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Fadel. India's foreign minister is in Moscow for a five-day visit that began yesterday. These two countries, Russia and India, have a friendly relationship that goes back decades and has only grown closer since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But India, of course, is also close to the United States. So how does it square this circle? To talk about this, we've got NPR's Dia Hadid from her base in Mumbai. Hi, Dia. Hi, Leila. So India's top diplomat is in Moscow. What's he doing there? So India's foreign minister, he's known as S.J. Shankar, is likely going to talk about trade. India has been a huge customer of Russian oil since the invasion of Ukraine, and it's getting that oil cheaper because Western sanctions have kept other buyers away. But those sanctions have also complicated how India pays for that oil. Russia is also India's top arms supplier, and it has been for decades. The war in Ukraine may have complicated that, so that could be on the agenda as well. Now, India has been getting closer to the U.S. and its allies in Asia as it tries to counter China's influence in the region, but it's not on the same page when it comes to Ukraine, right? Right. It's not on the same page at all. And it's important to note that India has not condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, despite significant pressure to do so. And there's two reasons why. The first, as you mentioned, India has an old, friendly relationship with Russia. You might ask, how old? Uh, Consider then the tweet by the foreign minister, S.J. Shankar, yesterday. He Mm. wrote, 
how it started and how it's going. And he posted a picture of a visiting card to the Red Square from 1962 when he went there with his father mm. alongside a picture of himself yesterday at the same place. So that's one reason. The other is that India prides itself on its independent foreign policy, what it calls strategic autonomy. So Rajaswari Pillai Rajagopalan is a political scientist at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. And she says the Indian foreign minister going to Russia is a way of signaling that autonomy even as India moves closer to Western allies on issues surrounding China. Even as India has gotten closer to the United States, Japan, Australia, to sort of balance China, India still does not want to be seen as going completely into one camp or the other. Okay, so I guess that the U.S. also wants to have India on side when it comes to China. So will it even criticize this visit? That's what analysts say, but there's also some understanding that India's position is also difficult because it has its own tensions with Beijing. And that's part of the reason why it's drawing closer to the US and its allies. But it might need Russia's support as well if those tensions escalated. Michael Kugelman is the South Asia director of the Wilson Center. India has not condemned the Russian invasion, but that doesn't mean that it supports the war. It doesn't support the war at all. The war makes Russia more dependent on China. And India doesn't want that because China is India's strategic competitor. So India needs the US. It also needs Russia, both, to counter what it sees as this threat from China. NPR's Dia Hadid in Mumbai. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Leila. There seems to be no end in sight to Israel's war in Gaza. Yesterday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited Israeli troops in Gaza and reasserted his country's commitment to, quote, deepening the fighting in coming days. This all comes despite global calls for a ceasefire and despite growing pressure to address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Last week, the U.N. Security Council passed a resolution to appoint a special coordinator for aid as a way to help get more aid into the Palestinian enclave more quickly. But it's not clear what the next steps will be. Juliette Tuma is Director of Communications with United Nations Relief Agency focused on Palestinian refugees, commonly known as UNRWA, and she joins me now. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Asma. The UN resolution that was hammered out took place under politicians and diplomats. That's how it was hammered out. How does it correspond with the reality on the ground in Gaza? What are the most urgent needs facing the nearly two million people there? The needs on the the ground are huge. Um, People lost everything and they need everything. And now with a rainy season, it's uh, everything from warm clothes to blankets but most urgently is uh, is food and water, and I think above all is protection and safety. So what is your biggest concern about meeting those needs? Is that we're not getting enough aid in, is that we are restricted um, to deliver aid wherever we need to deliver, including to some remote areas in the north. Um, is the overwhelming needs, is the ongoing and expansion of the military um, campaign that forces more people out of their homes and more people into UN shelters that are currently way, way overcrowded. The UN resolution that we mentioned at the top here, it calls on appointing a special coordinator to get aid into Gaza. What conversations have you all had about this? And and is it, Juliet, a realistic mandate under the current conditions in Gaza? 
think what really needs to happen in uh, in Gaza is more assistance, more humanitarian relief to come in, and also at the same time a humanitarian ceasefire. It is time for that, and there's no question about that. Um, what we're asking for is very straightforward. What's been the major bottleneck in getting that aid? You said additional aid needs to get in, but it's not been able to get in. Very, very little amount of aid has been uh, allowed in. There's a cumbersome um, inspection process. Um, there was a total hermetic siege for two weeks where nothing came in, and the world supplies have never been replenished. Um, we have been getting in very little in comparison to the 500 trucks of commercial aid and humanitarian supplies. In none of the days since the war began have we come to that amount of trucks, none. What came in is only 10% of what needs to come. I want to ask you a bit of a personal question. The Secretary General of the UN has said that in all of the history of the United Nations, the organization has never witnessed the death of its staff in such large numbers as it has these last couple of months in Gaza. You all, with UNRWA, have lost so many people. How are you and your colleagues mentally just going on in the face of these losses? Yeah, we lost uh, more than 140 colleagues at UNRWA. Uh, They were all killed during the war. And uh, the agency will never be the same without them. And yes, this is the highest number of aid workers killed since the establishment of the United Nations. Julia Tuma is Director of Communications with UNRWA, the United Nations Relief Agency focused on Palestinian refugees. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more stories and analysis on the Gaza conflict, visit npr.org slash updates. Now for one of the merriest or grinchiest traditions of the holiday season. Returning those gifts that just weren't quite right. People are returning more merchandise than ever before, but lots of toys, electronics, and clothing don't make it back to their original shelves. Many end up at bargain bin stores, where resellers comb through in search of items to flip for profit. Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi of our Planet Money podcast followed one such enterprising duo to learn the ropes. When I first meet Aslan Spencer and Michaela Ridgway outside the Treasure Hunt Bin Megastore in Raleigh, North Carolina, they tell me the first lesson of the return reselling business. Everyone else is competition. Does everybody like rush in at the same time? Or? Oh, yeah, they all run. <laughs> and they push, they shove, they throw stuff. It's a battlefield in there, literally. Today, a couple competitors have beat them to the front of the line, so they're going to have to be strategic. Aslan and Michaela use binoculars to spot treasures amidst the piles of returned goods inside. They then draw up a map and plan out little plays, like a football coach. Okay, possibly one of us going after the blender, and the other will go after like the new wave air fryer over here, or the smokeless grill back there. Depending on where they go in front of us. Yeah. Lesson number two, they tell me, is to zero in on the trendiest consumer items of the moment things they can buy for the store's flat rate of $10 and sell for much more online. They got into this a couple years ago, Michaela explains, when weighted blankets were all the rage. Then it was air fryers, then massage guns. And then the next week, it'll feel like everyone has one. And so then we have to move on to a new item and get that, and then it just repeats. As the last minutes tick down before the doors open, it starts to feel like one of those World War I movies, when all the grim-faced soldiers are lined up in the trenches, waiting to run into no man's land. Until, finally, it's time. 
We're inside. This looks like an air fryer. Oh, yeah, we've got a big air fryer. It's in a bin. Inside the store, it's a sensory overload. There are bright fluorescent lights, pounding pop music. It's like a little retail zombie apocalypse to the tune of Shape of Your Body. It's like Supermarket Sweep meets Mad Max. No, oh, I almost got run over. Oh, nice. Robo-vacuum. You're not going to get that pet drinking fountain? Mm, I'm not sure. Lesson number three, stay on task. Aslan and Michaela only grab things they can sell for 30 bucks or more. They even check prices online right before they check out. If the price it can sell for is too low, they won't buy it. I think we might put the weighted blanket back because they're kind of hard to sell right now. You're turning your back on your bread and butter? I know. I know. They spend about $160 each week and on average earn about $800, enough for them to pay their tuition at nursing school. I ask Aslan and Michaela if they ever get tired living in this constant flow of returned gadgets and price fluctuations, and Aslan tells me she dreams about not coming back almost every week. But then we're yeah. like, what if they put out, you know, something really good and we miss it? You feel like you're going to miss something so if you don't like go. it's like the Powerball, it's you know, you, you play nonstop and then that one time you don't play. Does it feel like an addiction, kind of? Yes. It is. Definitely addiction. Looking around as we check out at the piles of returned goods that might never find a second life, it's hard not to wonder about this system we've created. Where it's so easy to return things, the costs have basically been swept under the rug. Which reminds me, maybe I should buy a robot vacuum. Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, you'll consider what's ahead for labor unions in 2024, coming off some big union wins at the bargaining table. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. The new movie All of Us Strangers is a love story between two men that feels slightly unreal, like a fairy tale. But writer-director Andrew Haig also wanted to ground his film in some kind of reality. All of our decisions sort of came around, like, what does it feel like to be alone? And then what does it feel like to be intimate again with someone? What does it feel like to connect? I'm Ari Shapiro. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning. High today about 50 degrees. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. 
and from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Layla Falden. In the age of the playlist, do albums mean anything to music fans? Here at the end of 2023, our colleagues at NPR Music argue that there are at least 50 reasons that the answer to that question is yes. And we're joined today by that team's pop critic and correspondent, Ann Powers, who's here to talk about what makes for a great album in 2023. Hi, Ann. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. I'm excited to talk about music. <laughs> yes. So NPR's Music's List suggests that in 2023, there may have been fewer huge attention-grabbing albums that dominated the conversation. So where did the 50 best albums of 2023 come from? Well, yes, Leila, on the surface or at the top, we have albums that either came out in 2022, like SZA's SOS, for example, or Taylor Swift's remake of her album 1989, which to my mind sort of does and doesn't count as a 2023 album. Those are the mainstream hits. But all throughout the music landscape, there are these artists who fit in a category that the critic Robert Criscow once called semi-popular, or I like the phrase famous to a few. Um, in other words, they're very popular among certain communities, niches, making certain styles of music. And as they push the edges of their particular subcultures or scenes, they make these incredible albums. Well, let's listen to some of these bright lights of 2023. Where do you want to start? Well, I want to start with um, an artist who's connected to what I think is the most inventive genre right now. That's R&B music. Her name is Amare. She grew up between the hip-hop capital of Atlanta, Georgia, and Accra, Ghana. And she mixes in Afrobeats and some K-pop influences to her musical blend. She has this really captivating, unique voice, and she really takes chances on this album, which is called Fountain Baby. Let's hear a little of her song, Co-Star. songs on this record almost seem like fragments in, to some people maybe, but each song takes Amare in a slightly different direction and, and they add up to this really complicated sound world. It's a very rich album experience. She even has a punk rock track on here. So the next album that we're about to play that you have for us is a real swerve from that starting point, right? Yeah, well, if Amare represents the cutting edge of R&B, the Irish band Lancome stands proud as the titans of a new traditional Irish music scene. This is an incredibly vibrant, with so many great artists, but Lancome, a band that's on its fourth album, is you know just at the height of its powers. And this is always such an exciting moment for an artist. This album, False Lancome, blends some originals and many traditional songs performed in their their way, which is a mix of kind of like almost metalish influences. I hear the Velvet Underground and what they do. Um, mm. It's very droney, but it's also connects with the ancient folk traditions of the UK. Lord Abor and Mary Flynn Wow, that's pretty. 
So here we have Lancome, you know, playing a beautiful trad ballad like Lord Abor and Mary Flynn in a way that brings out all of its beauty and also its spookiness, you know. I mean, they're breaking the box around traditional music, and that's super exciting. Okay, so we're going from Irish folk slash metal to music from somewhere you live, right? Yes, this is uh, Joy Aladakun's great album, Proof of Life, out of Nashville, Tennessee. Joy is an artist whose music shows exactly how a niche or a scene is evolving. This album has guest spots from people like Chris Stapleton, you know, the king of cool country music, or the rising folk rocker Noah Kahn is also on this album. Uh, And Joy is often classified as Americana, but you know, listen to her voice and listen to how she puts so many elements together in these airtight, completely, you know, perfectly constructed songs. Can anybody say a prayer? Can anybody light a candle for somebody like me? Ooh, it's the least sick I could do for even more than he could handle to somebody like me. Ooh, mm, love that. These songs are so, they're anthemic, yet vulnerable. They're just what we need. And I just want to say, if John Mayer could be a huge star, let's make Joy Aladakun the next John Mayer. (laughs) (laughs) The next enduring star. I love that you're taking us into these genres. I mean, there's music that I wouldn't have otherwise known to even listen to. But, of course, there are the top of the charts. Is there anything on this best of 2023 list that's just pure pop? Yes, there is. But even the big pop albums this year connect to subcultures or, you know, communities that are very identifiable. Let's talk about Olivia Rodrigo, maybe the biggest new pop star of the decade. And she sounds like a particular kind of rocker. Her album Guts connects very strongly with pop punk or emo music. And this record claims that space, which very often belonged to young dudes, young guys, for her, a young woman who is speaking back to sexism and to just, you know, being treated like trash by trashy boys. You know, like so many young pop stars, Olivia started out as a Disney star, but she's different than somebody like Miley Cyrus, who had to fight to show her rock side. And she's found huge success by reclaiming or, you know, just claiming this style for herself. And I absolutely love it. I love the fact that young women are ruling rock right now, and, and Olivia is right at the top. And I love ending the conversation on that note on women ruling rock and be our pop critic. And correspondent Ann Powers, thanks so much, Ann. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 845 on WBUR's Morning Edition. The work of Newton-based artist Genora Justice is now on display at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts. Justice's paintings reimagine how women were portrayed by male artists in 19th century masterpieces. It's 830. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is pledging to deepen Israel's offensive against Hamas in Gaza. NPR's Tom Bowman reports that's despite a growing number of international calls for a ceasefire. The death toll is more than 20,000 now, with a majority women and children. You know, I was talking with a retired senior U.S. officer with long experience in the Middle East about all this, and he told me Israel will listen to the U.S. and then do things its own way. That's NPR's Tom Bowman reporting. Weather forecasters say a blizzard is sweeping across parts of the central plains. Several more inches of snow will fall from northeastern Kansas to South Dakota. NPR's Tristan Plunkett reports wind gusts in parts of Nebraska could hit near 50 miles per hour. The Nebraska State Patrol says troopers responded to more than 100 weather-related incidents on Christmas Day. In South Dakota, parts of a major freeway, Interstate 90, remain closed today because conditions continue to be dangerous. That includes an ice storm warning. The National Weather Service is cautioning the winter storm is so hazardous that travel will be nearly impossible in several states. NPR's Tristan Plunkett reporting. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher at this hour. This is NPR News in Washington. New York continues to lead the nation in population loss. Harrison Malkin reports for the third consecutive year, New York has had the highest state population decline in the country. New York lost over 100,000 residents from July 2022 to July 2023, according to the most recent U.S. Census Bureau data. Since 2020, New York has led the U.S. in population loss, with over 530,000 leaving the state, a decline of 2.7 percent. But the Empire State is still the fourth most populous state in the country, with about 19.5 million residents. California, Hawaii, Illinois, and Oregon were among the other states to see their population decline last year. Texas and Florida, though, had the largest population increases in the country. For NPR News, I'm Harrison Malkin. Americans are expected to spend nearly $30 billion on gift cards this holiday season. The National Retail Federation says most will be redeemed, but many wind up forgotten or unused. A bank rate survey found that 47 percent of adults had at least one unused gift card worth an average of $187. That's a total of $23 billion in unspent money. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Sharon Brody. When college dorms and dining halls shut down for winter break, students who rely on campus food services lose an important lifeline. WBUR's Emily Piper Valillo reports how one college in Boston is helping students access food throughout the end of the year. The Rocks Box, Roxbury Community College's food pantry, has served nearly 200 students since opening this fall. So before a temporary closure at the end of the year, staff have been busy handing out stop-and-shop gift cards and free-to-go meals. Lisa Carter, Associate Dean of Students, anticipates an uptick in demand for food among the campus community over the winter recess. Just because it's the holidays doesn't mean all of a sudden now they've got a pot of money sitting somewhere that is just going to be available to them to shop for extras. So we do imagine that there will be there'll be a need. Carter says food assistance can mean the difference between students graduating or dropping out. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper-Vellillo. Norwood police say the woman shot by officers last week is expected to survive. Investigators say officers shot the woman last Friday after she pointed a gun at officers and herself. Police say they spoke with the woman for about 45 minutes before she charged at them, which is when they shot her. Her name has not been released. State fire officials are reminding you to use caution and common sense to avoid house fires this season. According to the State Department of Fire Services, December and January alone account for 25 percent of all candle fires each year. Fire Services spokesperson Jake Wark says the cold temperatures also contribute to the problem. This is the season that we really are uh, turning up the heat, breaking out the space heaters, uh, putting a fire in the fireplace. Really want to be careful with those. Again, it's a, a real good argument to have working smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detectors. Seasonal light decorations and holiday cooking also contribute to fires during this time of year, as do live Christmas trees. So make sure you keep watering them. It's 835. WBUR supporters include Circle Furniture. You can shop their organic, sustainable, curated furniture collections during their end-of-year event happening now. More at circlefurniture.com. The Celtics beat the Lakers 126-115 on Christmas night in Los Angeles. The Seas return home for Thursday's game against the Detroit Pistons. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning. High today around 50 degrees. Some clouds overnight with a low near 40. Cloudy tomorrow, a chance of rain in the afternoon with highs in the lower 50s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faden. No bucks, no truck! No bucks, no truck! No bucks, no truck! From autoworkers to actors, nurses to newspaper reporters, more than half a million workers went on strike this year. And many emerged with big wins. So... Is this a union comeback? NPR's Andrea Shu is here to unpack all this. Hi, Andrea. Hi. So is it a comeback? Well, it's hard to say exactly. You know, since the 1980s, there have really only been a few years when we saw unions asserting themselves like they did this year. Mm. Most recently, it was back in 2018 and 2019. But then it was government workers, teachers, you know, who walked off the job in a bunch of states. I talked with Johnny Callis about this. He runs Cornell's Labor Action Tracker. And he said what's notable about this year is that it's really been workers in the private sector at companies who have driven the surge which is important because that's where unions have been weakest. And it remains to be seen whether this really translates into more sustainable gains or an increasing unionization rate over time. Because, Layla, right now, only 6% of private sector workers in the U.S. belong to unions. 
Well, that's a small share, 6%. Do unions seem to have the wind at their back? Could this be a turning point? Well, I think it's really too soon to tell. I am closely watching what is happening with the UAW. You know, the union president, Sean Fain, he has a site set on Tesla and also all of these foreign automakers like Nissan and Volkswagen that have non-union plants in the South that the UAW has tried to organize in the past and failed. But you know, the union is coming off major wins at the bargaining table. And at the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Sean Fain says already they have had more than a thousand workers sign union cards. He says workers are being harassed for wearing union stickers and passing out union flyers. And he also added this. Volkswagen's even gone so far as to start each shift by having frontline supervisors hold quick captive audience meetings where they read out anti-union talking points. Now, this is exactly what happened with the newly formed unions at Amazon and Starbucks. Those companies have fought quite successfully to put up roadblocks. To put up roadblocks. So what does that mean for these fledgling unions at Amazon and Starbucks? Well, they are pretty stalled at the moment. The Amazon labor union was finally certified in January this year, almost a year ago. But Amazon refuses to recognize the union. That's a legal mess that's ongoing. And at Starbucks, around 380 stores have now unionized, but not a single one has gotten a first contract because each side has accused the other of not bargaining in good faith. And getting a contract is really the whole point of having a union, to be able to collectively bargain for wages and benefits. I talked with Ian Mager, a barista in Oregon, whose store voted to unionize almost two years ago. I kind of knew that it wasn't going to be a quick fight. It wasn't going to be an easy fight. I, I would have preferred that Starbucks play ball. But Mager says in a way, the union has already won something. Starbucks has actually granted non-union stores some benefits that the union had pushed for, like credit card tipping and faster sick time accrual. These are things that workers now have in the vast majority of Starbucks stores, 90-some percent of them. It's been a real win for the working class, you know, for the baristas of Starbucks on the whole. The other week, Starbucks sent an email to the union saying it hopes the two sides resume contract talks in January and get to ratification. Okay, so we'll stay tuned for more on that. NPR's Andrea Shu. Thank you so much, Andrea. You're welcome. A note here that Amazon is among NPR's financial supporters and pays to distribute some NPR content. Palestinian health officials say in addition to the more than 20,000 people killed in Gaza, more than 54,000 have been wounded since the beginning of the war. The vast majority are women and children. NPR's Aya Batrawi spoke to someone who spent weeks in overwhelmed hospitals in Gaza trying to care for children. And a warning, this story mentions suicide. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has physicians at some of the few hospitals still functioning in Gaza. Emergency coordinator Marie-Aure Perreault-Rivière describes what she saw there. So our surgeons had to operate on, on one-year-old, two-year-olds who had to be amputated from one leg or two, one arm or two, but they, they lost. Uh, it, it's very, very common. Perreault-Rivière spent five weeks in Gaza at different hospitals and clinics and left only a few days ago. Reached in France, she says she saw kids severely wounded, crippled for life, but also orphaned and with nowhere to go. And the only thing I can say is that it's even worse in reality than it looks. It's the amount of suffering is just something, yeah, incomparable. It's, uh, it's really unbearable. 
MSF was offering mental health support to children in Khan Yunis, an area of intense fighting now between Israel's military and Hamas. She says children there were drawing pictures of their house being bombed and family members killed. She says kids as young as five were having suicidal thoughts. I'm speechless when I try and think of the future of these children. Um, it's generations of, of children who will be handicapped, who will be traumatized. There's very, very children in our mental health um, program are telling us that they would rather die than continue living in Gaza now. MSF had also been treating kids in that clinic for skin disease, diarrhea, and chest infections. But they had to stop their operations because of Israeli evacuation orders. Around 2 million Palestinians have been displaced by this war. Many don't have access to clean water and are living on the street. Perrault Rivial says some of the amputations she saw there were the result of wounds that had become severely infected. She says doctors are struggling to offer post-operative care to babies in Gaza who've lost their limbs before they could ever learn to walk. And we're also doing physiotherapy, but again, how do you do physiotherapy on a, on a baby of one year old who cannot walk but has already, who's already lost her, his legs? She was at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis recently. That's where Dunya Abu Mohsen, a 12-year-old girl who'd lost her right leg, both parents, and two siblings, was being treated. She says in a video she wants a prosthetic leg and to become a doctor to treat other kids. It was recorded by Defense for Children International Palestine, a Palestinian human rights organization focused on kids. But on Sunday, she was killed inside the hospital by an Israeli tank shell, according to Gaza's health ministry. Israel's military did not respond to NPR's request for comment on this incident. Israel blames casualties on Hamas for operating in civilian areas and says its war in Gaza is to destroy Hamas after the October 7th attacks. Perrault Rivial says there's very little that aid groups can do for survivors while bombs are still being dropped. It's a life of incredible suffering that is just ahead of them now. What's the future there? And she says no amount of aid can make up for what Gaza's children have lost. Aya Batrawi, NPR News. If you or someone you know is in crisis, you can call or text the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline at 988. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, it's the Marketplace Morning Report. If you have a flexible spending account through your health insurance, then you might need to spend any money in it by the end of the year. And more businesses are trying to get some of that money. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning. High today around 50 degrees. Overnight lows around 40. Cloudy tomorrow, a chance of rain in the afternoon. Highs in the lower 50s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Now, in, bi- in business news, a new effort is underway to put Boston on the map as a dining destination. WBUR Stevie Chapman explains the plan goes beyond foods like clam chowder and lobster rolls that are traditionally thought of as Boston favorites. The initiative hopes to reshape how people think of Boston cuisine. What we've recognized in the past several years is a new Boston culinary story. David O'Donnell is among those leading the effort for Meet Boston. He says it will spotlight neighborhoods that tourists don't typically seek out. That includes Dorchester's Vietnamese cuisine and Latin American fare in East Boston. So it's just really also leaning into this idea that we are a destination that is 400 years of immigrant history and 400 years of diversity. 
and that we can use the food motif to really tell that story. More than two dozen Boston area chefs are also offering up their personal stories and recipes for the campaign. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 846. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS, and Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Sharon Brody. Throughout history, women have often been objectified by male artists. Now, one local painter is reimagining the way women appear in 19th century masterpieces. WBUR's Jacob Garcia explains. The Museum of Fine Arts Contemporary Wing is a hot spot for visitors. On a recent afternoon, school groups and other patrons take in the work of Newton-based artist Ginota Justice. It's like the holy grail of any artist, you know, to get into a, a space like this and have all these people looking at your work, because really that's all artists want, it, it, it's to be seen. The exhibit Lay of the Land is Justice's first ever museum show. She paints faceless feminine silhouettes over marbled backgrounds that reimagine art historical masterpieces through a feminist perspective like Eugene Delacroix's Woman of Algiers, which Justice says reinforces a male-dominated society. And I wanted to kind of rescue them, I don't know if that's the word, you know, taking them out of that context and celebrating them for being human beings and also uh, wonderful women who are together in this group. The original painting depicts three seated women while an enslaved woman leaves the scene. Art historians still question whether Delacroix had permission to paint them. In her version, Justice replaces the enslaved woman with the silhouette of herself. MFA curator Michelle Miller-Fisher says Justice's signature silhouettes are purposeful. They are abstracted, they're anonymized, and so they become unified with their landscape in a way that connects them very powerfully, both women and nature, in sort of a riposte to these 19th century painters who have often so populated our museums. She's not wrong. Between 2008 and 2020, just 11% of U.S. museum acquisitions were of work by women artists. Justice defines herself as a woman painter, and she's tired of a patriarchal society. I'm already like hearing the, oh, she's talking about the patriarchy. The patriarchy to me is a system that is very unjust and it's flawed and it's brought us lots of problems. The sentiment drives her creative process. This year, the School of Museum of Fine Arts awarded Justice a traveling fellowship. She journeyed to France to study the work of 19th century male artists. Though Justice's work questions these painters, Fisher notes that it comes from a place of admiration. It's not as if it was a binary or black and white critique, but she was very interested in thinking about the ways in which she could repair, rethink what it means to have a female painter come to this type of subject matter. Justice says she feels an obligation to change the view of these women and also empower others through her art. But there's also an element of self-gratification she feels when she creates. I see myself in these ancient women who posed for these male artists and, you know, 
good for them for having painted them because now I have access to them. But, you know, like I feel entitled almost to, to treat their imagery as mine. And I feel good about that. Justice's paintings are both colorful and critical. Her perspective prompts viewers to question revered male artists. She says her art will outlive her, and she hopes that it leaves a lasting impression of positivity. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jacob Garcia. Genora Justice Lay of the Land is on display at the MFA through April. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on Ukraine's offense against Russia's invasion. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give by Sunday, December 31st at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. President Biden ordered U.S. airstrikes on a rammed-act militia in Iraq following an attack that injured three U.S. service members. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu published an op-ed saying Hamas must be destroyed before his war in Gaza can end. A storm across the central plains is prompting blizzard warnings in parts of Nebraska and South Dakota. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. A dense fog advisory is in effect around Boston until 10 this morning. High today about 50 degrees. Overnight, the low will drop to about 40. Cloudy tomorrow, a chance of rain tomorrow afternoon, and highs in the lower 50s. It is 38 degrees in Boston. Diesels and Ram pickup trucks were rigged to overpollute. Now the engine manufacturer is set to pay a price. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL, whose offerings are backed by global data and intelligence, which can reveal unique opportunities for investors in commercial real estate. JLL.com. See a brighter way. I'm David Brancaccio. The Indiana-based company that makes diesel engines for Ram pickups has agreed to pay a record civil penalty, $1.7 billion, for violating the Clean Air Act. The Justice Department says for years, Cummins installed devices to cheat on emissions. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. This agreement between Cummins and the Justice Department covers about a million engines made for Ram pickups between model years 2013 and 2023. The Justice Department says Cummins installed devices on its engines that bypassed or disabled emissions controls, and that led to the release of thousands of tons of excess nitrogen oxide emissions. Now, nitrogen oxide is a toxic gas. Scientists and regulators say it helps cause that 
reddish-brown haze you might see in smoggy air. It is also thought to likely cause asthma in children from prolonged exposure, along with a number of other health effects. Have there been recalls of trucks connected to this? There have. Uh, Cummins is not admitting any wrongdoing, but it says it's already addressed a lot of the issues. That includes a previous recall of 2019 Ram trucks. It's also recalling 2013 to 2018 model years. Uh, it's expecting to spend about $2 billion in total dealing with all of this. Perhaps that'll be the end of it. But I'll note that Cummins supplies engines and other related parts to several makers. Uh, it supplies Packar and Daimler Trucks North America. Those both make semi-trucks. It also is a supplier to Nissan. So as of now, though, no related recalls, David, announced at those other companies. Nova, thank you for that. And in Japan today, the Daihatsu brand of Toyota closed down production lines at all four of its factories amid concerns about possible cheating on safety certifications. Japanese officials are investigating the crash and other safety tests on 64 models. Toyota models in the U.S. are not affected. Daihatsu makes little vans and trucks favored in Japan. Daihatsu's president last week said some of the problems here stemmed from pressure on workers to meet tight development deadlines. Last month, the oil producer's cartel OPEC lowered the amount of crude Angola was allowed to pump. Now the country in southern Africa says that it's quitting OPEC. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab has that. Oil production in Angola has been falling for nearly two decades, says Abi Rajinderin, director of oil markets research at Energy Intelligence. Back in you know sort of the mid-2000s, their oil production was closer to 2 million barrels a day, and now it's closer to 1. The drop means Angola hasn't been meeting its OPEC quota. But Victor Katona, head of oil analysis at Kepler, says the country doesn't want to be limited by a new one. They care more about their long-term future than they care about, you know, sitting at the table with all the big guys. Katona says since Angola doesn't produce much oil, cutting ties won't hurt the cartel's supply, but it does hurt its image. For that semblance of cohesion within OPEC, this is a huge blow because also, this shows that if someone is dissatisfied with what OPEC does, they might just as well leave. Angola's departure leaves OPEC with 27% of the world oil market. More than a decade ago, that number was nearly 35%. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. This day after Christmas is an extra holiday for financial market players in Europe. Here, we don't know from Boxing Day and markets will be open and now S&P and Dow futures I see are a little changed. The 10-year interest rate also hasn't moved much, still under 3.9%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on Think or Swim. More at schwab.com. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. You may have one of those flexible spending accounts at work. They take out money from your paycheck and you can spend tax free on medicines, eyeglasses, and more. Now, you can roll over some of that unspent money to the new year, but that's limited, which leads to flex accounts burning a hole in people's pockets in these final days of the year. Businesses are working to take and make more products eligible for FSAs, hoping to capture some of these dollars. Marketplace's Kimberly Adams has that. 
The online herbal pharmacy Apothecary sells drink blends and tinctures for the sober curious, as well as sleep aids and other products. But founder and CEO Shizu Okusa wanted that FSA eligible label for her products. And this year, she got it. I felt very important for the customer to know that herbal medicine is legitimate and it's not just something that you know, is like the woo-woo witchy kind of side of things, which tends to be historically what herbal medicine has looked like, at least in the U.S. People with use-it-or-lose-it FSAs tend to be higher income and working for larger employers. And almost half of them end up with money left in their accounts at the end of the plan year, says Jake Spiegel at the Employee Benefit Research Institute. And the average amount is about $450. And so what these companies are doing, it's pretty clever because people have leftover money at the end of the year that they probably want to be spending. To help them spend it, there are companies like TrueMed, which, for a fee, works with customers to get letters of medical necessity. So people with FSA cash can use that money for gym memberships, fitness apps, herbal supplements, even meal kit delivery. Callie Means is TrueMed's co-founder. You know, there's no law that says medicine is a synthetic pill created by one of these big pharma companies. Medicine is what a doctor substantiates can help prevent or reverse a condition. This is all new for companies like Apothecary. CEO Shizu Okusa says she's seen about a 10% spike in business since partnering with TrueMed and getting FSA eligibility for her products. And she says those customers are shopping differently. We're definitely seeing customers that are buying in bulk. They're kind of spending in a way that it doesn't feel like it's their money. Like the average order value, I would say, is like close to $200. Normally, she says, the average order is half that. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. Again, you can roll over up to $610 of an unused Flex account into next year. Our producers are James Graham, Liz Mai, Naomi Rainey, Olivia Wilson, Nick Perez, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Garrettson-Morby. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning. High today reaching about 50 degrees. It is 38 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.